Father, I ask that this morning, as we gather to hear from you, that you would give us a hunger for your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you are speaking to us through your word. God, that you would satisfy our deepest longings with Jesus, the true bread from heaven. Help us to look to him. Help us to feast on the bread of life and live forever, we pray in his name. Amen. Title of the message this morning is, Do You Want to Live Forever? And this question, I think, for us exposes a universal human longing. There's a universal human longing to escape death, to find cures for the diseases that ravage our bodies. And there's a longing to find peace and harmony in this world. Every religion throughout history that has ever existed, and even the most secular worldviews that dominate the landscape today, they all find this question inescapable. Do you want to live forever? And for our purposes today, the question, do you want to live forever, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It doesn't just appear out of nowhere with no context around it. For the Jews that Jesus is interacting here with here in, in John chapter 6, and for us, this question is, is very important. We are all part of this human story, this longing and this searching for something more than what we see and what we experience here, for hope beyond what our eyes see and what our hands can touch. As we dig into these I am statements, if you're just visiting with us, we're going through the I am statements of John. We're going to be doing that over the next seven weeks. We need to wrestle with Jesus' claims about himself, about who he said he is. We need to do that in the same way that his original audience did. So let's pick up from where we ended last week. We were in John chapter 5, and John chapter 5, beginning in verse 30 through verse 47, Jesus reminds the Jews that there are four witnesses to him. Four witnesses to him as the one sent from the Father. He talks about the Father witnessing to him. He talks about John the Baptist witnessing to him. The works that the Father gave him to do witness to him. And then finally, we looked at last week, the scriptures witness to him. From from Genesis all the way to Malachi, the whole Old Testament pointed forward to and witnessed to Jesus. Then beginning in chapter 6, we have the account here of the feeding of the 5,000. These huge crowds who follow Jesus, he, he feeds them with bread and fish. Then after that is the account of Jesus walking on water. And then next, the next day, the crowds are following him, and that's where we pick up here in verse 25. It's a large section. I'm not going to read all the way through it. We're going to kind of read through it as we go. And there's a lot going on here. There are a lot of profound spiritual truths, and there's a lot of ways we could kind of slice this pie as we go through it. But I want us to focus in today on a repeated phrase to give us a framework for understanding what Jesus is, is asking us. This question, do you want to live forever? Now just to be clear, Jesus doesn't actually say it this way. He doesn't say directly, do you want to live forever? But I think that question is at the heart of this passage. And we're going to see that in this repeated phrase. Jesus 
uses it four times here in John chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you. Which literally, in the Greek, is amen, amen, I say to you. Okay, the word amen, that's where we get the word amen. It means truly or verily, some translations say it. And you'll, if you've read through the Gospels, you're familiar with this. But John is the only Gospel writer who doubles this. The other Gospel writers say, truly, I say to you. John doubles it for emphasis. Truly, truly, I say to you. And that happens 25 times in John's gospel where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. In chapter 5, in the section uh, just before the section we spent two weeks on, beginning in verse 19, Jesus makes three truly, truly statements that all relate very closely to what we're going to be seeing here today in chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, look with me at John chapter 5, verse 19. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Now this is the beginning of this entire section where Jesus is talking about he's not coming on his own authority. He's coming with authority from the Father. So truly, truly, I say to you, I'm not coming on my own authority. So that's what one of the things he's going to reiterate. The next one is in verse 24 of chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from life, from death to life. So this idea of believing, having eternal life, passing from death to life. We're going to see that in our passage. And then verse, the next verse, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Here he's talking about resurrection. And we're going to see that again throughout our passage today. Just a reminder, kind of talked about this last few weeks. We can't read passages of Scripture, especially these I am statements, which are amazing and profound. We can't read them in isolation from the rest of Scripture, and especially in isolation from the context of what Jesus is doing and trying to accomplish in the hearts and the minds of his disciples and of the crowds and of us here today. We need to see what is going on here, the bigger picture. So with that in mind, let's, let's dig in. Verse, we're going to start in verse 25 and read through verse 31. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So this first truly, truly statement of Jesus is going to address their misguided seeking. And Jesus has already touched on this idea of them having misguided seeking in chapter 5, verse 44. 
We looked at this last week. He said to them, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That question is an answer. He's he's saying you can't. You can't believe if you seek glory, if you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. So their seeking is misguided. And he tells them, you're, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, though they did, and they should have been amazed by those signs, but they're seeking because they ate and they were satisfied. This base human response, right? Their hunger being satisfied. He's saying that's the reason, that's the only reason that you're truly seeking me is just because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then he hits them with this very important truth. Don't work or don't labor for the food that will perish. Right? We've probably all had the experience of taking a, a loaf of bread or a block of cheese that had that fuzzy green stuff growing on it, right? And you have to throw it away, right? Jesus is saying, you work and you do all this labor, right? You, you make this loaf of bread and then you forget about it. It's going to perish, right? It's going to go bad. It's not going to live forever. It, it can't eternally satisfy you. Instead, work for the food that endures to eternal life, which, and here's the key, the Son of Man will give to you. This word here, give, it's used ten times in this passage, and it has huge significance. Almost always in the New Testament, when this word is used, it's used as, with the idea that it's someone greater giving something, bestowing a gift upon someone lesser. It always has this idea of of being graciously given, the idea of granting, and we're going to see that later. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, which we just prayed, right? Give us this day our daily bread. It's talking about 100% reliance and dependence upon the grace of God. We need him daily to give us our bread. And that's obviously, it's talking about, I mean, Physically, yeah, but spiritually, we need that spiritual bread. So eternal life, it is given as a gift. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we work to get. Someone might object and say, well, doesn't Jesus say here to work for that? To work for the food that endures to eternal life? And I think the idea here is similar to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. It's a passage that you might be familiar with when you hear it. Isaiah's describing the compassion of the Lord toward his people despite their sin. And he says, the Lord says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Amazing parallels there with what Isaiah says, and what, what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 6. And Jesus' hearers, original hearers, the Jews, would have been no strangers to these verses. Yet they miss his point here. I don't know about you, maybe you've had this experience of having a really frustrating conversation with someone where the person you're talking to just doesn't understand what you're trying to say, 
right? You're, you're, you're saying it as clearly as you can, and they, they're hearing something totally different, right? They're hearing what they want to hear. And you're like, you're not understanding me. That's how these next verses go. They literally ask in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What, was, what must we do to work the works of God is what it literally says. And this is our human nature, isn't it? Just tell me what to do, Jesus. Just give me some instructions. Give me an instruction manual so we can just follow the steps. So I can just do A, B, C, D and get it right. Right? That's what we want. And Jesus keeps it real simple. Just believe in me. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Really? That's it? (laughs) Come on, Jesus. Just give us a sign. Prove yourself to us. And as they're talking in verse 30 and, and 31 there, I can imagine Jesus saying to himself, Hello, did you just see me multiply a little boy's five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people? Their comment here in verse 31 is, a, I think, a classic case of the back-in-the-good-old-days syndrome. They mention the manna in the wilderness. And then they, they quote from Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 15, which is, is really interesting. It's in the context of this corporate worship service where they spend three hours reading from the scriptures and then three hours confessing their sins and worshiping. It'd be like us getting out of here at 5.15 p.m., okay? Sit tight, everybody. We've got a long, a long day ahead of us, right? In the middle of this six-hour confession and worship session, they acknowledge in, in Nehemiah 9 that God gave them bread from heaven to satisfy their hunger and water from the rock to satisfy their thirst, what they're quoting here. But then it says that they acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey God's commandments. So their very argument here in John 6 is working against them. They're saying, well, we got the manna, right? We, we, we got, God fed us. But in that very passage, it says, you didn't even obey. You didn't listen. So Jesus, being the master at reading their motives and pointing out their unbelief, he further points out how their, how their argument breaks down by his next truly, truly statement. In verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the second truly, truly statement is, tells us that God is the only source of eternal life. Jesus keeps going here. He doesn't take his foot off the gas. He keeps talking about his father. If you remember in chapter 5, after he healed the man on the Sabbath, they were seeking to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And he's saying here, the true bread, it's not manna. It's not the stuff that I just multiplied yesterday to satisfy your bellies temporarily. It's me. I came down from heaven. My Father gives me to you and to the world so that you might live. And then their response to that in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. 
I picture Jesus' response here a little bit like that to Philip in John chapter 14. I shared this a couple weeks ago. When Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, I've been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I think Jesus here is saying, give you this bread always. How much more plainly can I say it? Come on, people, right? And then he does. He says it as plainly as he can. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. (laughs) Hello? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here we see Jesus offering himself as the only thing that can satisfy our true spiritual hunger and thirst. It wasn't enough for them to see with their physical eyes. They wanted a sign, which he showed them in the feeding of the 5,000, but it wasn't enough. He says in verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And the truth, the greater spiritual reality, which Jesus highlights over and over, especially in these I am statements, is that we can't come to him on our own. It's one of the major themes, especially in John's gospel. We can't come to him on our own. And verses 37 to 40 make this crystal clear. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The theological term for what Jesus is talking about here is effectual calling. It means that it is effective because it's God's will. As Jesus says, his will that all who the Father gives to him, all who the Father grants to him by grace, will come. And he says that he won't lose any of them. We just sang the song, He Will Hold Me Fast, right? That's what that song is talking about. He will hold us fast. He will not lose any of us. This is what we call perseverance or preservation of the saints. In other words, what God starts in us, he will finish. He will bring it to completion. If you struggle with assurance of your salvation, go to John 6. Read John 6, 37 to 40 every day, every hour. Okay, there's, I don't know if there's any clearer passage than this right here. Jesus promises this. If the Father has given you to him, you will come and he will not lose you. He will keep you. He will hold you fast. And people love to debate about predestination and election and free will and man's responsibility. And I rather enjoy some of those debates myself at times. But Jesus here is clearly not leaving this open for debate. He's essentially saying, my father and I are taking all of the credit and we're getting all of the glory for the salvation of rebellious sinners. And you have to love their response 
here because it shows the hard-hearted response of sinful man. Verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Who does this guy think he is anyways? And Jesus has a perfect response in verse 43. Do not grumble among yourselves. I love how the New Living Translation puts it. Stop complaining about what I said. (laughs) Okay? Stop it. Then he doubles down on what he said in verses 37 through 40 here in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Get a little geeky here for a second. Um, with you know, getting into the Greek a little bit, and I try to share these things sometimes. I don't want to like say you can't understand your Bible if you can't read Greek. But here is an interesting. Well, you could you could figure this out by looking up the other words "draw" in English. I think, um, but I don't know if it's it's used exactly the same. But this word here that is used for "draw," it's only used six times in the New Testament, and. The other, there's one other time it's used in John 12 when Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So that's a similar meaning to, to what's going on here. But the other four uses, uh, one is Peter drawing his sword out. Uh, two uses are talking about the disciples when they're fishing. The nets are so heavy that they can't lift them up. Okay? That's the word to draw. The other time that it's used are talking about when Paul and Silas are dragged into the marketplace. Okay? The meaning is that it's something that is done with tremendous resistance. It's dragging them into the marketplace, or it's trying to to draw this net full of fish up into a boat. And what a great picture this is of our salvation. Have you ever heard someone share their testimony about how God dragged them kicking and screaming into his kingdom? That's the picture in Ephesians 2 that James talked about a couple weeks ago. We're dead in sin, and we're running. We're on a a full sprint away from God. And God saving us is is pulling us back from that dead sprint, dragging us to himself with all that resistance. And doing what? Making us alive together with Christ, raising us up, seating us with Christ. That's what he says here in verse 44. I will raise him up on the last day. That's what's already true of you if you are in Christ. You are spiritually raised up and seated with Christ. Here in John 6, Jesus promises the not yet part of that equation. He will raise us up on the last day. You see that language used four times throughout this passage. Raise him up on the last day. Okay, we're 20 verses into like a ton of verses, okay? That's a lot to take in. It's a lot to digest. What can we take from this? First, and most importantly, you must remember that the one who saved you, the one who drew you to himself, despite your sin and your depravity, is the same one who promises to keep you. 
If he could overcome your sin and rebellion and draw you to himself, I think he's able to keep you, right? The second thing that we need to see is how we're just like the Jews in this passage. After everything Jesus has said, you still might be asking yourself, yeah, but what do I have to do, right? What do I have to do to contribute to this? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, what you have to do is repent and believe. Believe what Jesus says. That he is the one, the only one who can give you eternal life. He is the one who promises to raise you up when you believe now and on the last day. But you can't do that apart from the Father drawing you and calling you. And when he does that, you'll know because you won't be able to resist it. He may have to drag you kicking and screaming into his kingdom. And he will do that if he so chooses. His call is, come, don't wait, come now, believe in Jesus now. And if you are a Christian, what you have to do is keep believing what Jesus has already told you. He's not trying to trick you. He's speaking very plainly here about who he is so that we will continue to embrace him by faith. Speaking of speaking plainly, I think the next truly, truly statement here in verse 47 is the proverbial nail in the coffin that puts to death all the arguments against him being the only source of eternal life. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He's talking here about believing and living. Each of the truly, truly statements, all four of them, are related to to eternal life. But this one here is the most clear. Whoever believes has eternal life. I think we see that because he backs it up right after this by repeating, I am the bread of life. He goes on. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Embracing Jesus by faith is a matter of life and death. Eating earthly bread, even the miraculous manna that God provided from heaven in the wilderness, does not give eternal life. But eating the living bread which came down from heaven means that you will live forever. Then Jesus in verse 51 makes a statement about his crucifixion. He says in the last part of 51, I am the, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, notice here the word give. He will give his flesh. He will give his very own life for the life of the world. To be a Christian means that you trust in and you believe in Jesus who gave his life on the cross as your substitute in place for your life. But here they go again, right? The Jews grumbling, disputing among themselves what Jesus is saying. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 52. And Jesus 
being amazingly patient. He's going to answer them for a fourth time in this passage with the last truly, truly statement. Truly, truly, verse 53, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I want us to notice a couple things from this section. First, in verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. That's a concept we're going to be seeing in the rest of, of John later on. Uh, that's very important to chapter 15 specifically. It's the same word that we saw in verse 27, where Jesus said not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. It's the same word, the word for endure and the word here for abide. Enduring to eternal life means Jesus abiding or dwelling or remaining in us and us in him. This is speaking of our spiritual union that we have with him. Again, it's that language from Ephesians 2 that James shared a couple weeks ago, that we are made alive together with Christ. We are raised up. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. When we believe in Jesus, when we feast on him, we get him. We don't just get the benefits. We don't just get forgiveness of sins and victory over the grave and the promise of resurrection and eternal life, all things that we must have but we get Jesus. And that's the whole point in this discourse. He's saying, stop looking for satisfaction in earthly bread. Eat and drink from the only source that will satisfy your spiritual hunger. Feast on me. I don't know about you, but I get so tired of trying to fill up on earthly bread. I'm not just talking about a physical loaf of bread talking about all the things that I run to, all the things I'm prone to wander and go after besides Jesus to try to satisfy the longings that only he can satisfy. Whether it's the success of my favorite sports teams, maintaining my own reputation, trying to have my family all put together so everybody says, oh, your kids are so well behaved, hoping that the church is going to make it, having enough money to not feel constantly stressed financially, There are so many things that I can so easily run to. And I love Jesus because he is so constant and so inviting and so merciful and gracious and patient with me as I wander. Standing with arms open saying, come and eat and drink and rest and be satisfied in me alone. I love this next section beginning in verse 60 to the end of the chapter. We're not going to read it, but just kind of narrate it. Jesus' disciples, they start, his disciples now start grumbling among themselves about how what Jesus is saying is hard to understand. 
And Jesus responds by reminding them in verse 65 that, again, no one can come to him unless it is granted that word given again by the Father. Then some of them turn back and no longer walk with him. And he turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go away as well? Man, I feel like this some days. When my own doubts flood into my mind, or the world around me continues to rage against Jesus and the truth that he came to proclaim, it's almost as if in those moments this question is directly put to me. Do you want to go away as well? But if the gospel is true, if I am in Christ because God the Father gave me to the Son, and if the Son cannot lose me, but raise me, will raise me up on the last day, then what other choice do I have to cry out along with Simon Peter, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life, and I have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else can you go? Where else can you go? Let's pray. God, I thank you for what you have done to save us. To draw us to yourself. To give us new life by grace through faith. To raise us up, to seat us with Christ in the heavenly places. To give us the hope and the promise of eternal life. God, I ask that you would satisfy our deepest longings with Jesus the true bread from heaven, that we might eat and drink and live and be satisfied in him alone. Thank you that you drew us to yourself and that you will keep us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.